Ten years ago this August, I showed up on my seminary's campus for the first time in Alexandria, Virginia, all my earthly belongings stuffed into my old blue Honda Civic. I was surrounded for the first time in my life by people who were just like me, same age, same beliefs, same interests, same feeling of having been haunted by a holy ghost all their lives and following it to that point. Even with all this in common, uh, you probably know that it is hard to make friends in a new place. The school planned orientations and mixers and dinners and all the events to get us to, you know, bond as a class. But looking back, the one thing that united us above all else was something that the staff had never planned. It was a class. It was a class that lasted all day for three days. The content uh, is not important to this story. It was really the instructor who treated us all like we were, in fact, three years old. (laughs) He was the kind of guy who liked to work in his attendance at a particular Ivy League school into every conversation. He dispensed the most mundane information with this maximum amount of arrogance, like a guru condescending to touch the adoring unwashed masses below. Do you know the kind of person I'm talking about here? Fifty people in my class, strangers to one another with so much in common, the same desire to do good and find God in this world, and every last one of us hated this man. Like, I don't say this with pride. This common hatred bonded us like nothing else had to that point. We coalesced, we commiserated, we have carried on our jokes about that experience to this day, 10 years later. Have you ever noticed that nothing unites us like a common enemy? What is that? It's universal in the human experience. I don't know what it is exactly. Evolutionary biologists hypothesize that it comes from, you know, tribes bonding against the outsider in order to survive. Though it strikes me that that initial inability of our class to bond together as outsiders seems more aligned with that theory, right? To actually find camaraderie through mutual dislike, that's kicking it up a few notches, it feels like. Scripture helps me pick this apart more than evolution does. One of the biblical words that's hard for folks like us to understand is the word sacrifice. One of the books that's trying to understand sacrifice is the book of Hebrews, which we heard read by Charlotte a few minutes ago. Uh, And aside about uh, Charlotte, uh, your predecessors from years past, uh, uh, years ago I heard a a lector say, uh, reading from the letter of Paul to the Hebrews, uh, which is about as wrong as you can get in describing this book. Um, No one knows who wrote Hebrews, but it definitely wasn't Paul. Uh, It's also not a letter like the others. It's more like uh, a sermon. And it's not to the Hebrews. It's about the Hebrews, 
written by a Christian who is in that point of t- in time trying to make sense of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, right? In particular, the writer of Hebrews delves into the sacrificial system and the wrath of God. So, to understand sacrifice, let's start with an early Old Testament classic lynch mob story. In the book of Joshua, chapter 7, Israel has just suffered a minor military defeat. Now, the Israelites' loss of morale, their melting hearts in battle, as it's put, are unambiguously seen as the wrath of God at work. If the Israelites fail in battle, someone must be acting unrighteously within the Israelite camp. God conveniently provides a lottery to determine just who that unrighteous person is. The lot falls to a man named Achan, and all Israel picks up stones, bludgeoning him to death. In ganging up against someone else, they create unity and peace among themselves. Setting aside the actual stones here, Does this begin to sound familiar? Achan dies, and so God's wrath turns from them, the scripture says. Of course it does, theologian James Allison comments. The shifting patterns of fear and mutual recrimination which had riven the people have been overcome by their triumphant and enthusiastic unanimity. From their perspective, it feels as though peace has been given them. This is, in fact, peace in the way the world gives it, the peace which comes from unanimity and righteous hatred of an evildoer. But it is misperceived by the participants as peace flowing from God, thanks to the right sacrifice having been offered. Time goes on. The sacrifice, it turns out, works just as well when it's an animal stand in for the guilty humans. The priest would take the animal and sprinkle its blood on the people to protect them from God's wrath. A little bit of violence inoculates you against the greater violence in the world, right? This turns into liturgy powerful catharsis that creates the same feelings of unanimity and righteousness for the people participating in it. Most folks I know balk at the Old Testament's system of sacrifice, rightly so, but I don't think we're so far past it. I don't think it does us any good to say, well, we've moved beyond this mentality because we don't believe that God is wrathful. Of course, you and I think that the wrath visited on Achan was human wrath. But removing God's name from it does not change our circumstance. I think it's clear that we have not moved past it. And we find all sorts of ways to justify it, divine or not. From the violence necessary to keep us safe the sacrifice of the environment for our ease and comfort, 
to the everyday wrath that we kindle with our huddle of friends against the immigrants, the native, the rich, the poor, the conservative, the liberal, the old, the young, the idea we are against and who, what they embody, whatever threat we might perceive, we return to that same old system. There is one exception. The writer of Hebrews calls Jesus the great high priest. But this priest, instead of finding yet another animal to place the community's shame upon, instead of finding that scapegoat to kick out for the, for the community's problems, this priest put himself intentionally in the system as the victim. The only real innocent there ever was placing himself voluntarily in the way of our wrath. And by doing so, he reveals it for what it is, human sacrifice, murder. He shows that this is not a God who needs to be appeased by blood, but a system by which humans have made peace among pockets of ourselves by our mutual hatreds. Jesus offers us a way out of the system. Instead of sprinkling us on the surface with the blood to make us innocent, we actually take it in. It becomes a part of us, the body and the blood of the sacrifice that we demanded. We now become the ones who undo that system. At 11 o'clock here later, we're baptizing a baby. His name's Thomas. It's a different experience than baptizing an adult, someone who knows the weight of his faults and how these systems of the world works in all of us, even some very good people with lives devoted to God on their best behavior at seminary, maybe, maybe even particularly them. But we are, what we are imparting to Thomas later is God's promise that he will never be outside of God's circle of love. This promise that we've all found ourselves in by virtue of our baptism will lead us to ask of him all of his life, like we ask of you, some very hard things. To leave the ways of the world to turn from them, to step instead into those hurting places, the body and blood of Christ himself inside, empowering us to do so. So take, eat. Thomas, all of our children, everyone here, we need some good examples to set our lights by. Let it begin with you.